You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week that focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes, such as the one that you're about to hear with Padre Gotama in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. Padre Otuma is the staff poet and theologian at the On Being Project and hosts the Poetry Unbound podcast. He was formerly a leader of the Corimila community in Northern Ireland. His books include Daily Prayer with the Corimila community, Sorry for Your Troubles, A Poetic Memoir, in the shelter, finding a home in the world, and borders and belonging. The Book of Ruth, a story for our times with Glenn Jordan. And that's where we're really excited to have him and where we'll be spending some of our time thinking about as well. And so just welcome to uh, Inverse Podcast. We're so grateful to have you. Thanks very much. It's nice to be with you. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Jared and everybody. Padraig, um, as way of grounding this new book, um, uh, we, we just want to share our condolences. We're aware that your co-author, Glenn Jordan, um, is no longer with us. And as a way of um, uh, acknowledging him and uh, uh, for, for us to do um, that work that you put in the um, dedication of the book to, to keep him um, forever in our hearts, we're wondering if um, you'd ground our time by actually sharing with us who Glenn was for um, those who hadn't been introduced and more importantly, um, maybe given this text, who he was for you and the significance of Glenn for you. Um, so Glenn uh, is another Irish man. Um, I'd known him since I was 11. He had been a, a leader on a scripture union camp that I was on as a kid. <laughs> Some of you might know scripture union. Um, he was from just south of Dublin. I'm from Cork. And um, we both found our way up to the north, up to Belfast. And um, I suppose it was about, I mean, I, he had been a real kindness to me on that camp. And I'd never seen him again. I never thought I would. But I always remembered the kindness of, uh, of a person, uh, of a, an adult. I thought he was ancient. He was only 22, I think, when I was 11. A person who um, could be good to young people. Um, and I had remembered that during difficult years, and I had many difficult years in my teenage years. Um, and I had remembered his kindness often and recalled it often. Um, for a camp of five days um, is enough to last a lifetime if kindness is shown, I think. And certainly the memory of that was. Um, Anyway, I moved to Belfast and I heard about this character, Glenn Jordan, who worked just four or five miles away in the east side of the city. I was working in the west side of the city. And I thought, where is he from? 
because there aren't Glenn Jordan isn't a very popular name in Ireland and it was with two ends even more so and I'd always remember that so people said oh he's from somewhere near Dublin not Dublin but near Dublin I thought it has to be the fella so I phoned up and went across um, and I'd written him a poem and I thought my god this man might hate poetry but I need poetry and so anyway I'd written the poem and we met up and chatted um, and he remembered so many things about me and of course I remembered so many things about him and then um, just as we were leaving I said I don't know if you like poetry but I've written one for you and I gave it to him and left you know um, yeah uh, he, he was an extraordinary theologian he took theology very very seriously he had degrees in economics as well and so for him, the overlap between where religion and economics meet, especially in a city that had known such murder and violence as Belfast, that was vital for him. He used to always look at maps of a city to say, who is building the roads where and who do they think and whose houses do they think are worthy of being knocked down in order for roads for rich people to drive on to be built? And for mm -hmm. him, a map of a city was an insight into the morality of a city in terms of the city's planners. He was extraordinarily gentle and overwhelmingly fierce when it came mm -hmm. to the question of a map of a city. And he was... Um, yeah, really, really interested in ways within which economics um, and politics needed to be read through the lens of theology. He was thrilled whenever he met anybody who came at something in a, from a different way from him. He loved meeting people. You could always be guaranteed that if there was going to be somebody left at the end of the party speaking to somebody that they just met that night about whatever, religion, politics, border crossing, passports, um, it would be Glenn. He'd be sitting there talking to somebody. So he was, um, he had a light in his face and he was filled with um, the joy of meeting people. So mm. he died very suddenly. It wasn't COVID, a heart attack, 55. Um, so unexpected, terrible. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. As you were talking about your friend and him and it, just the language around the map of the city it reminded me of um willie jennings how he just talks about like i've heard him say in person like uh the church should be showing up to like city planning meetings right exactly <laughs> um, totally yeah and and just how he uh, I, I hear vibes of what your friend was getting at that that i certainly learned from jennings in terms of just taking seriously um, how we organize, right, the the planning and the movement space and place, um, and Excuse how it me. affects some folks and other not others. Yeah, that's yeah. so powerful. And yeah. and who gets to decide? The question for him was decide. always, who draws the map, the the yeah. imaginary map about what this, you know, there'll be loads of energy often around. You know, we've got this city, and we're going to do the renewal of the city. And look, we've got this new highway that will link here to here, and isn't it amazing? Hmm. And he will always say, "What's there now?" Yeah. And presumably it's not the playing fields of a private school absolutely mm -hmm. not because mm -hmm. the the school governors will always know somebody on the city council or perhaps the minister for infrastructure but um whose houses are there where there it is expected that the folks who are living and working there 
may not have recourse to public representation in a way that's going to pay attention to their lives and their livelihoods. Um, what are the ways within which a person will suddenly have to cross a highway to get to their school? You know, right. typically yeah. highways completely, they put a border across a neighborhood yeah. where suddenly an entire neighborhood is, is disrupted. Off. And it's not yeah. as convenient as splitting two, Drew, you're, you're totally correct. It's cut off. Mm. It's like, an, we talk about arterial routes. Mm. This is the um, clogging of an arterial route of livelihood. And yeah, so yeah. I, I learned so much from Glenn when it came to the question of power and what mm. it meant to, if you have any power to be open to change rather mm. than to be open to forcing. That's so powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And that's, that's my, that's my city. That's where I live. My neighborhood has that cut straight through yeah. it. And so thank you for sharing your friend with us. Um, mm. Such a gift. And, uh, in light of the work that you all did together on voters and belonging, I'm curious about when, when was the first time you remember actually encountering the book of Ruth? You- oh gosh. Um, I, years ago. I mean, I read through the Bible, you know, in a year when I was 19 and I didn't understand any of it, but I suppose that's okay. <laughs> I hadn't a clue really what I was doing, but I suppose to, do something like taking a bath in a text is not a bad thing. Um, mm-hmm. And then I did uh, I did an undergrad in, in theology. I did a Vatican undergrad uh, a few years later, and I suppose so I wrote some essays on the Book of Ruth then. Um, yeah, I kept on coming back to it, though, because I found so much of it interesting. And the question about Moabite <laughs> and, you know, yeah. near neighbors who were alike enough, but not um, but uh, but distinct enough that they hate each other. Um, I suppose it always felt like it had resonance to the question of Britishness and Irishness here. Yeah, I, I think that was the first time I, I laughed in uh, your new book where you talked about, um, uh, did you word it as the, the irony of two Irish guys writing about Moabites? Mo no. <laughs> two white Irish men. Yeah. One of the quotes that I learned from you, Padre, um, uh, years ago in your incredible facilitation. And actually Drew's heard me on a number of occasions talk about when um, I think of great facilitators, I think of you. I know for most people, you're this extraordinary poet and um, uh, theologian and uh, mediator. And uh, I deeply respect all those parts of the things that you do. And yet when you facilitate, I feel like um, uh, I see uh, the kindness and the attentiveness of our friendship in action for others. And it's extraordinary. And there's this quote that you often use, um, writers think they tell stories, but stories actually tell us um, from Arundhati Roy, if uh, I'm not mistaken. I'm yeah. interested to hear uh, why the book of Ruth as a story to tell this moment in um, Irish history, British history with Brexit, but also um, in, in the introduction uh, you, you both talk about the realities of uh, what is happening in the US um, and what is happening elsewhere. Um, when did you start to play as with Ruth as a, a text that actually can can liberate and ask new questions? Um, I suppose it was in around 2015. I was leading the Coromela community at that stage. 
Corimila is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation community, I suppose. We would now call it a public theology project, but at the time it was just a community trying to pay attention to violence and murder, and also the political and religious machinations behind violence and murder. Um, the the um, British politics um, across the water in Britain were gearing up towards this thing called the Brexit referendum, which would be a referendum deciding as to whether Britain would or wouldn't leave the European Union. And in some ways that is, uh, that is small bananas, you know, um, except for the fact that um, because of colonization, Ireland is divided in two. Uh, Ireland is split. The northeast corner of Ireland is called this jurisdiction called Northern Ireland. And that was a border imposed by the British at the beginning of the crumbling of the British Empire. They didn't leave all of Ireland. They left most of it and imposed a border and created two new jurisdictions, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, and the, the resulting arrangement of a Protestant state for a Protestant people, which had nothing to do with theology, but everything to do with identity. If you were British of origin, you were given extraordinary privilege. If you were Irish of origin, i.e. Catholic, you were not given extraordinary privilege. And in fact, some of the persecution was horrific, um, systemic persecution. And so the peace, you know, there was a trouble broke out then in the, in the 60s um, and that lasted for 30 years. And then a peace agreement was arrived at between the British and Irish governments ratified by the United Nations in a, in a perpetually binding commitment of peace where the British government recognized that it did not have jurisdiction over the north of Ireland. The people have jurisdiction and sovereignty over the north of Ireland. And the, um, currently we still have the arrangement we've had for the last hundred years where the north of Ireland is partitioned, but the, um, uh, the, the British government recognised that they were not the ones to maintain that, that sovereignty over the island of Ireland belongs to the people of Ireland. And if the island, if the island of Ireland ever decide we want to vote for reunification, then uh, that is our prerogative to do so. Um, and as a result, the border is a very, very porous border. There are now no longer any border checks. There are now no longer... Uh, there is a huge amounts of cross-border cooperation. If you have a heart condition and the nearest hospital to you is two miles, but across the border, well, then that's the hospital you go to for your heart condition. All, all of those things, matters of life and death depend on that. There are, uh, I think, 320 um, border crossings across this 500 kilometer border. Ireland is a small country, but the border is very porous. There's loads of farms that are on both sides of the border. Some houses are on both sides of the border. Um, when the British drew the border in 1921, they said that they would review the border three years later with a border commission to see whether it had worked. But then they canceled that review because Ireland hadn't yet paid back our debts of empire. The British government currently deny that Ireland was part of the empire, but yet they were, they were imposing debts of empire on the island of Ireland. Our language was decimated. The Irish language is the oldest written language in Western Europe. It has the oldest literature. It is a beautiful language. And that language too was decimated. A famine that caused 2 million deaths and an utterly avoidable famine that caused 2 million deaths in three years um, had happened, which changed the face of Ireland up until today. We are still not back at the level of population that our population was at when that famine came. So the British um, population was debating whether it should or shouldn't be part of the European Union, meanwhile paying what I would consider no attention 
to the question as to what that decision would do to the island of Ireland and the population of Ireland, who, for the last 700 years, have been asking, what are the British doing now to us? That has been a regular question for 700 years. And we had thought with the arrival of the peace agreement 20 years ago that this was the beginning of a new period of productivity and peace and peaceable relations. But once again, it just seemed to be a desire to go back to make it worse. And not deliberately, that's the thing. I don't accuse British people of being in any way deliberately callous. It is that empire rarely knows the history of empire. Places right. with, of empire are filled with stories of them being a historical nation, but yet they don't know their own damned history. It is the places that have had empire foisted upon us where we absolutely know the history of empire. We know the history that empire often categorically refuses to incorporate in their historic in their historical curricula hmm. yeah so good. so good this is only the beginning of about four hours where i go on about empire so i'm going to stop That's now so because i've probably <laughs> forgotten your first question oh yeah your first question jared when did i begin to think so the question as to where is ireland and where is the united kingdom because the britain claim the north of ireland as part of the united kingdom and so therefore when you use the word the united kingdom some people will consider part of Ireland to be in that. I don't. I absolutely don't. But I understand some people too. And they're good people, people of virtue and goodwill. A lot of Protestant people, evangelical people would say the north of Ireland is absolutely British and part of the United Kingdom. I don't agree. I consider that a leftover of empire. But I know that if you try to talk about Brexit using a story of geography and political geography, that people would disagree from the first moment. So I thought mm -hmm. we need a story that can hold us in order for us to be critical about ourselves and each other. And immediately it seemed to me that the Book of Ruth was the story to turn to. A book about widowed, displaced um, border crossers, a book about women, a book about law, a book about change, a book about challenge, a book about threat, and a book about nearby enmity that has to be taken very, very seriously. It, it, felt, like a, uh, it felt like a really important text to consider approaching um, for today. Mm. Now I'll shut up. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm seeking to be very disciplined in um, uh, not adding uh, any telling to the story um, of, of the realities that um, you've grown up in. Um, uh, this might be a great place to actually jump into the text. Is there a particular um, part of Ruth that you've chosen for us to play around with as we discuss the, the whole book? Um, and Padraig, I, I would love if one of the beautiful prayers uh, that accompany oh, yeah. each chapter would you be really willing to, to read one of them as a, a way to yeah. ground this discussion? For sure. So the text that I'll read is from um, chapter four. The Book of Ruth is a very short book. It's only got four chapters. And this is really the culmination of the book when Ruth and Boaz have found their way to each other. And, you know, um, and so this is what all the people are saying. The Book of Ruth has this series of characters almost like a greek chorus who comment you know when ruth and naomi come back the the there's a, a grouping of people going oh check it out here comes naomi coming back and naomi says call me naomi no longer call me mara for i am bitter and she says i am alone and you can imagine ruth going hello my name is ruth um i'm a moabite from moab and she's regularly called a moabite from moab as if we don't as if we don't know anyway so this is the culmination of this and this is the chorus once again commenting and all the people who were in the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses 
May the Lord make the woman coming into your house like Rachel and like Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel and do worthies things in Ephrathah and proclaim a name in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, to whom Tamar gave birth by Judah from the seed that this young woman will give you. And so what we see here, I think, is so interesting in the sense of that um, Tamar is highlighted and Rachel and Leah, too, as people who built Israel. And these um, interventive narratives of women who survived the machinations of power and the machinations of men who were deciding themselves who those women should marry. And so what we see is that this chorus of people are commenting already about Ruth within that context. Um, she's almost like a, a systemic intervention into a system that needs to pay attention to itself. Oh, and the prayer. Here's a prayer. Um, so this book has um, eight chapters. Glenn wrote four and I wrote four. And then there's a couple of questions, maybe three or four for each chapter, if groups want to use it for discussion. And there's a prayer as well um, for each chapter. So here's the prayer for it. Um, which is about chapter three, which is the chapter uh, um, really where Ruth goes and um, either seduces or at least entices Boaz into a commitment. You can read it differently depending as to how you want. We can talk about that mm -hmm. if you like. Mm -hmm. Here's the prayer. Strange God, you speak from clouds and burning bushes, from donkeys, death and devastating news. You speak through stories of the past made relevant today. You speak through mistakes we make and through the things we do to keep ourselves alive. If the far end of the horizon is no limit to you, then surely neither are we, ourselves, our lovers, our enemies, those we troll, those we denigrate, those we extol and lift to fame. Whoever you are, speak to us wherever we find ourselves. And again and again, plead with us. Open us up with little stories, small surprises that soften our guarded borders because you are the strange voice that speaks from strange places, calling us strangers all toward each other and toward a justice that looks like love. Amen. 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 What a powerful prayer to open us up to others, right? Yeah. Thank you for that gift. That's so great. True. Um, I'm curious, um, as we think about the book of Ruth and you, um, you know, sometimes we ask questions around um, one's own lived experience in terms of like, the kind of lens that we get as we interpret scripture, but I'm actually kind of curious about um, what you think Ruth could do or could be as a lens for folks in conflict, right? Like what might happen had if, if more of us were to grab Ruth and allow that to provide a lens for us mm -hmm. to engage these conflicts um, in our society? So I think one of the things that Ruth does is that Ruth, as a character and as a book, um, she speaks to the need for us to reevaluate law and legal structure in light of the circumstances that it creates. 
there can be in certain circumstances this idea that there, there is the um, objective theology or the objective um, constitution or the objective law. There is this fascination with objectivity that you find. Um, and the Hebrew Bible um, challenges that enormously because in the Hebrew Bible, what you see is that law is reinterpreted through the lens of the person who is most disaffected by law. And if the law doesn't work for them, well, then the understanding of the law needs to change. And actually it highlights that the understanding of the law has been impoverished up until now. And that it is the individual, not as a result of charity or pity, but as a result of their great courage who challenges the interpretation of law. And in this situation, what we see is that Ruth is the embodiment of the challenging of a law that said that um, Moabite and Israelite marriages couldn't be considered to be valid. This is really a, a legal text. So she is the widow of an Israelite man. She has moved back across the border. And the question is, is as a widow, as a Moabite widow, is she entitled to glean the corners of the field? Is she entitled to be married to a, a nearest kinsperson of her dead husband? Had she been local, that would have been totally the case. And I would guess that had she been a different kind of foreigner, that would have been the case too. But she wasn't. She was a Moabite kind of foreigner, a Moabite from Moab, as they keep on saying. And so who is the despised among us? And what is the, what is the function of self-reflection in light of the experience of dispossession from the law? And therefore, in situations of conflict, what I think is a, a biblical imperative is to imagine who is most negatively affected by what we're talking about now, and how can they be the interpreter of what we're speaking about now, rather than how can we silence their voice, how can we get rid of them, how can we justify the poor treatment of them. This is saying, you know, that subjectivity you are saying is the, is the mark of the beast in terms of liberalism. This is actually the mark of God interpret through that life and that story and if you can't do it there you've never been able to do it at all mm. god is found in that intellect ruth is the intellectual and legal and moral and religious and geopolitical interpretation point for a life she is not a, a, a a subject to be pitied or a person upon whom charity should be bestowed she mm. is the one who was returning a people to themselves yeah, that's incredible. Budrick, I've never been to Cork. Um, your your hometown is a mystery to me. Um, and I've since learned more. But I think well into my 20s, the only thing I knew about Cork was the burning of Cork in 1920. Like it, it was literally the only thing. And as you discuss law L-A-W, I think of um, Uncle Ray Minicon, who um, likes to talk about law, L-O-R-E, and the stories that we tell um, and how our laws are actually related to the law we tell about ourselves and how we consider outsiders, in this example, the Moabite, is directly related to the trauma of the stories that we tell that laws sometimes um, institutionalise. Um, would you speak a little bit to... Um, the kind of reality of um, the diaspora Irish experience that the only way I've, I know anything about your home is this experience, um, uh, you know, over a hundred years ago now and how that feeds into the practicalities of the work that you're doing with the Book of Ruth um, in 
on the Emerald Isle? Yeah, so, I mean, lore, kind of L-O-R-E, meaning the stories we tell about ourselves and the stories that have taken on power and law. That's a lovely connection. I think it's, I've never heard that before and it's, it's fascinating. In, in Hebrew, we'd hear of Torah. And I think if we only understand law through the lens about how Jesus speaks of it in the Gospel of Matthew, we are on deeply anti-Semitic grounds because the Gospel of Matthew is trying to make different points. Um, mm. Torah is the secret name of God unfolded. Torah is that which is not divorced from the question of love. Jesus was not the first to say that law needs to be interpreted through the lens of love. Ruth was mm. doing it way before him or whoever wrote Ruth. Um, so Jesus was showing how Jewish he was in his capacity to do this rather than him being the first one. That's a yes. deeply important point to make about yes. law. So even when we speak theologically about law, I often think that we um, are intentionally or unintentionally it doesn't actually matter we are bearing false witness against our jewish neighbor by speaking mm. about law as if jesus was the only one to bring law and love into a conversation where they are reciprocal mm -hmm. so um when it comes to the question of the stories that diasporas tell you know ireland has has suffered there's no there's no way away from that in terms of the loss of language through policies that removed um language fluency um, and punished language acquisition through a famine that didn't need to happen. The population in 1845 was perhaps nine and a half million. By 1880, the Irish population was four million. That is an extraordinary drop. Uh, and then there's the partition and then there's all kinds of things, okay? And um, when Ireland, when the, the new, the Republic of Ireland was seeking to be able to grant passports in the 1930s, the British government appealed against the possibility of Ireland being able to grant passports. You just see how the tendrils of empire and power hang on for a very long time. And so lots of Irish people, myself included, found a great sense of identity within the context of the struggle. And the struggle was real, the struggle for Irish independence and Irish sovereignty was real. And nationalism, when it's small countries who've never had the dignity of nationalism, is very different to nationalism when you're talking about Britain or That's France right. or America. Right. Okay, I yeah. want to make a big distinction between that. The, the arrogance of large countries that have fucked up the world, that mm -hmm. they are the ones to decide what nationalism is. They're talking about their supremacies. And I fundamentally reject the premise that Irish nationalism has got anything to learn from the question about how British nationalism needs to be de-escalated, de but mm. local nationalism in small countries that haven't had the dignity of our own languages um, to be enshrined in our constitutions properly and spoken fluently, that's an entirely different matter. I wish they were two separate words. Yeah. But one of the things that Irish people have not paid attention to, and this is so important when it comes to the diaspora question you're talking about, Jared, is how a suffered people, and Irish people suffered a lot. How did we act when we began to migrate? So right. over the course of the famine, either one or two million people died in three years. And at least a million left, went to North America, went to some to Argentina, loads to Britain, loads to Australia, some to South Africa, all across the world. It's why the face of the police in the eastern in the eastern seaboard of the United States, you know, there's all these Murphys and O'Toomas mm -hmm. and all these characters that you hear, you know, the O'Sullivans, all these names all across the place. 
And Irish people have this lore, like you're talking about, Jared. Mm -hmm. We have this lore that because we suffered, we were the friends of the suffering. <laughs> and that is an absolute falsehood. Noel Ignatieff mm -hmm. has written a book called How the Irish Became, Irish White, became White, in which he yeah, explores. It's, it's brilliant. And he explores how those who suffered under empire, i.e. Irish people, when we went across and we had learned how to speak English or were learning to speak it and were close enough to the British that far away, the British thought, well, we mightn't like you back home, but my God, you're okay here. You're similar enough. How Irish people became hand in glove with the mechanisms of empire. And so as a result, you had Irish people setting up newspapers um, in, in the United States that were um, anti-emancipation newspapers. Um, mm. John Mitchell was one of those. And John Mitchell was a Protestant from Ireland, a huge critic of the British government. He was incarcerated in what is now Tasmania, what was then called Van Diemen's Land, um, mm. and which has its own name. I, I don't mm -hmm. even like using those names. You know, that landmass has its own name. But John Mitchell was incarcerated there for what he said about the British. He said, the Lord God Almighty indeed sent the famine, indeed sent the blight, but the English created the famine. OK, so he, he had such a critique of English empire when it came to Ireland and he in his own hand in an editor in a newspaper that he was the co-editor of. He wrote time and time again, anti-emancipation editorials. And so you see this um, phenomenal challenge that the Irish diaspora need to face up to in ourselves, that the experience of suffering in ourselves does not indemnify us from the possibility of passing suffering on elsewhere, both to indigenous people and to enslaved peoples worldwide. The Choctaw Nation were the first nation to give um, relief for the famine poor in Ireland in, in 1845. Right. The Choctaw Nation sent $170, which is a phenomenal amount of money to send in 1845. The Choctaw Nation found out about the famine poor in Ireland because one of the people that was displacing them from their land was an Irish soldier who was being paid as some kind of mercenary. He, while he was displacing people, complained about having been displaced as a result of an unnecessary famine and a people sent a gift of generosity. And there is now a, a reciprocal endowment back and forth between Ireland and the Choctaw Nation. Mm -hmm. And regularly we, we tell the story about how of the generosity of the Choctaw Nation, which is absolutely to be told. But what is not told is the question as to how did the Choctaw Nation find out about the Irish um, famine? They found out about it by being displaced by an Irish man who, um, while we might want to pity the circumstances that had caused him to leave, nonetheless, we need to challenge ourselves as Irish people about the ways within which did we learn nothing from suffering. Yeah, that's so powerful. And, um, you know, I've deeply appreciated my friendship with Jared precisely because of the way that I feel like he tells an honest story that grapples with the suffering. Because I, like, growing up, I... I think I had only experienced Irish American stories being weaponized, weaponizing the narrative of suffering in an anti-Black way that bolstered American exceptionalism and bolstered denial of racism. Um, and I can literally only think of uh, probably, I'm not even sure five, but a handful of folks in my own context who I've actually encountered with, who've actually seen the, 
their story as caught up and bound up with those who are colonized in a way that actually joins us together in struggling yes. together. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's been a frustrating experience to see that narrative, which, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, the parallels, you know, of from the colonial era up to the present, there's so much to be shared, right. And to be learned. There is, yeah. um, but, but the power of white supremacy and the lure of whiteness um, too often just entice people in ways that, again, weaponize that, um, which, yeah, I, the the telling of our own truthful stories, you would hope would liberate, right, from some of those realities. Yeah. 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 There's another lens through which you can look at this, too. I have the quotes here, I think, um, through the story of Frederick Douglass. Um, mm-hmm. Let me look. Um, So Frederick Douglass visited Ireland in 1845, just as the famine was beginning. Um, And he gave many speeches. He was in Ireland for a few months. There's one paragraph which is often quoted and lots of political parties here are using it. Um, You know, so here is a small bit of that paragraph. I can truly say, this is Frederick Douglass speaking, I've spent some of the happiest moments of my life since landing in this country. I seem to have undergone a transformation. I live a new life. The warm and generous cooperation extended to be by extended to me by the friends of my despised race, the prompt and liberal manner with which the press rendered me its aid. And then he goes on. He talks about people turning up to hear him. He talks about members of various religious bodies. He talks about people at different levels of society. And he says, um, all of that contrasted so strongly with my long and bitter experience in the United States. And I look with wonder and amazement on the transition. So mm. Irish people love to quote Frederick Douglass. There's talk about Frederick Douglass curricula coming into Ireland for yeah. that. Fantastic. And, and murals. Except murals, the whole lot. Yeah. yeah. Except this was in 1845. Within the next five years, hundreds of thousands of Irish people landed in the United States. And this discovery about the Irish becoming white had happened. Here's what he said in 1853. And this quote is never used. Yeah. He says here, 1853, Frederick Douglass speaks or writes, the Irish who at home readily sympathized with the oppressed everywhere are instantly taught when they step upon our soil to hate and despise the Negro. They are taught to believe that he eats the bread that belongs to them. Sir, the Irish American will find out his mistake one day. He will find that in assuming our avocation, he has also assumed our degradation. Yes. And that mm. is, we, we, we use appropriate Frederick Douglass so conveniently for a kind of an anti-imperial story rather than realizing, my God, the Irish learned quickly how to join in in the imperial story. That's right. And, and the Australian story is, is no different. I think it was 6% of uh, convicts that were brought out to these lands now referred to as Australia were Finians. Um, so it, it's uh, because of anti-imperial uh, agitation yeah. that meant that they ended up here. Um, but the, the, the road was so quick to actually join in this uh, white utopian egalitarian project um, that, that was um, uh, Australia. Uh, Padraig, I'm aware that we're doing the work parallel to your text, um, which brings up for me, I, I love how you came about writing this together, the fact that you did these workshops and these kind of discussions happened. Um, yeah. I, I love 
that you ask questions about um, the interlocking of people's stories and families. Um, I'm aware that um, Andrew and uh, other friends, Padraig actually lives on the street that literally um, you walk less than three minutes up the road and that's where my grandparents went to mass. Um, uh, you, you walk two streets over and uh, you, you're down um, literally in, in their neighborhood on, on their streets. Um, these places and these geographies um, uh, in those streets, I'm aware that I talked to family there about other family that I visited and they're like, who? And I remember ringing my dad and saying, and I, I won't share names, but Patrick, uh, um, uncle so-and-so said they didn't know aunt so-and-so. And dad go, oh, don't you remember? I said, if you bring that up, it's going to get awkward because she married a prison guard. And so that part of the family kind of disappears. And yet in your workshops, you're actually inviting people to tell the disappeared stories um, that people erase of family connections. Oh, as we do this uncovering work and how and the work of how not to be Irish, which um, is a larger question that inverse, I think it'd be fair to say, Drew, that this is an ongoing conversation for so many people in anti-racism work is what to do with whiteness um, and how not to weaponize when we remember who we were before we were white, but actually do the work of solidarity. Patrick, would you talk to us a little bit about the workshops that you actually did, the processes um, that yeah. produce these reflections? Yeah, so we, we didn't start off to write a book. We started off to use the Book of Ruth as a, as a template for public conversations about Britishness and Irishness in Ireland, North and South, as well as across the water in Britain. And so one of the things, so we, we worked with about 5,000 people over three years. Um, we had it translated into Welsh. We did workshops in Scotland, England and Wales, as well as all over Ireland. Sometimes that workshop was just an hour. Sometimes it was eight hours, you know, over a weekend. Um, and what we would often do is to say, look, we all come here with, with power and with narrative in our family about British and Irish identity. And so we'd say, let's just name these things to start off with. Who here has stories of Scottishness in their family or Welshness or English or Irishness or border crossers in the new border across the island of Ireland? Who here has stories of people in their family who moved from being Protestant to Catholic? And you need to understand within the context of Ireland, moving from Protestant to Catholic, Scotland as well, that that is not just a religious statement, if indeed it is a religious statement at all. It is a statement <laughs> to do with power, okay? Yeah. It was always a statement to do with power when it came to the question of that. And so um, it, there was never one room that we were in where there wasn't a massive amount of people putting their hand up to say, yes, this, yes, this, yes, this, yes, this. And so what we would always know is that in the families of the people in the room, the living and the dead families of the people in the room, what we were talking about was people, individuals who had moved usually for financial gain um, because they were at threat of um, dying out of starvation at some point. Um, be back and forth, you know, or they couldn't get a job or et cetera, or they were facing discrimination. And then we would say, let's talk about some of the things we hold against each other in, juris in our jurisdictions, because, you know, there's a lot of ways within which growing up as an Irish speaker in Ireland, I learned all kinds of th things to say about the British or about the English particularly. And we'd say, let's just say it. And one time we were in um, 
Christchurch Cathedral in Dublin and somebody said here look we're in a holy place I'm not sure I can say the kind of things that we said about the English inside here and somebody else said um look we are um we're here to build peace why are we why are you asking us to say these awful things we're like well because you haven't said them yet in a holy place you've said them around your kitchen table so let's do a little bit of accountability let's say the kind of things you grew up saying about irishness or britishness the irish language the english language protestantism etc let's name those kinds of things let's name the things we hold against each other and we would do that and then consider what are the ways within which our livelihoods have benefited? What are some, attitude, some attitudes, approaches to gratitude that we can do? Not as a way of saying, let's all make nice and it'll all be lovely, because I'm utterly bored by that approach. However, I was aware that the media was benefiting and certainly the, the conservative government in Britain was orchestrating an approach towards speaking about Irishness and escalating narratives of division. And sometimes when you can do it wisely, um, narratives of gratitude can actually be their own rebellion. And that was important yeah. for us to do too. And so what you found in a room is that there was never a room that didn't have crossing borders, Britishness, Irishness, Catholics, Protestant in the room. There was never a room that was without prejudices that we had grown up with, even if we didn't hold it. And there was never a room that was without gratitude either. And so to say, well, what does it mean to be honest about all of these things together in the room here? And with that, then we would introduce the idea of Israelites and Moabites and say, through the lenses of what we've talked about, the tyranny of near difference, as Freud called it, through the lenses of that, let's explore the opening of this text um, and the politic of this text. Israel, you know, Hebrew and, and the Moabite language were so near to each other as to be mutually comprehensible. You know, this wasn't about the far, the far, far, far away person coming in as the stranger. This was about that group of people across the border who we've hated for a long time. So we do a tracking through the lens of how, how the Hebrew Bible speaks about Moabites. Um, and then say, well, how have you spoken about Scottish people or Irish people or Welsh people or English people? Or for those people who know the map of England about Cornish people or people from Northumbria or, you know, the, the, the internal differences as well. And to say, let's pay attention to this and then begin to talk about um, how to let this text be a text for our time. Mm. That's good. That's good. So one of it, we love to hear about, um, you know, what forms our guests, right? Um, so I'd, I'd love to hear about what are some of your own practices, life practices, liturgical practices that keep you attentive to just the disproportionate suffering in our world? What, what, what does that life rhythm look like for you? Um, so my practices, um, I read poetry every day. Um, I suppose that um, pays, helps me pay attention to the power of language. Um, I um, listen to the news in English and Irish um, because I think to speak a language that has undergone persecution is a radical act in and of itself, as well as an artistic act. Mm. And news is different in English and Irish because there are fewer commentators who can comment in Irish on global matters. So therefore the interviews tend to be longer, which is exciting, you know, rather than a sped through news cycle. There's a slower news cycle, not because news is slower, but because they give more time. Um, 
I am a I am very definitely somebody who likes to pay attention to, to news cycles. I like to have um, I like to read news from different sources. Um, I've got my radio tuned to ABC Radio National. <laughs> I, I lo- oh, it's an Australian news station, and I think some of their news coverage can be very good. Over the times, it's worthy of criticism, of course. Um, I suppose it's important to me when it comes to reading poetry and when it comes to reading anything to make sure that I'm not not just reading a canon that somebody who looks like me and sounds like me has to find. I don't want to just read um, male white Irish poets and certainly the, the canon of Irish poetry publicly has for a long time been about, you know, Seamus Heaney and W.B. Yeats, both of whom won the Nobel Prize in literature and magnificent poets, but it's too easy to only read only think that Irish poetry is white male Irish poetry and mm. um, Irish poetry is many other things too. Mm. Um, so when it comes to the question as to who I'm reading, I'm always careful about paying attention to um, the question as to what, um, what, what power structure am I giving my artistic atten- attention when it comes to the question of my reading. There are so many easy ways to read widely that there is nothing other than either laziness or prejudice to blame for not mm. reading widely. That's a good yeah. line. That's good. Yeah. Yes. That's, so, well, I'm, I'll be quoting you on that line as I try <laughs> to convince people to expand their reading lists. <laughs> Patrick, I'm aware that um, that question in part comes out of um, uh, the book itself and um the sharing of the situating for Jewish people of the book of Ruth as a companion to the Exodus journey and the the Pentecost festival, which some of us are so ingrained in um, a a Christian imagination (laughs) that we can barely think of Pentecost without thinking of Acts 2 and remember that, no, no, this is a tradition quite separate to all of that prior to that, that if we enter into, we'll actually deepen what we know um, uh, once we step, step into the Second Testament. Um, uh, that sense of, uh, as you write in the text with Glenn, of the ordinariness of Ruth, like I'm always struck that um, there's God talk from people in Ruth, um, but there's no, nothing said yeah. from God. And, and that's, that's yeah. a fascinating um, uh, thing from this little book and you you juxtapose um uh the the exodus and the drama with the simplicity and ordinary of of ruth and um how it's treated in the liturgical year for jewish people Mm. um i would love to hear uh, either if you want to expand on that some or just the importance of um the ordinariness um in the drama of the religious life uh, I would love to yeah. hear you on either. Well, I could say both. I mean, this was mostly Glenn's writing and what Glenn was doing was simply telling the brilliance of um, Jewish liturgy. So Glenn mm. had a PhD in in the reading of third Isaiah through the lens of urban development. So his mm. Hebrew was very, very good. Um, mm. And so, uh, so the imagination of the new city, and he had been working on this. Um, so, in fact, he hadn't. He had finished the PhD, but he hadn't been granted it. I don't know if that's going to happen, but he had done all the work. Um, mm. And what he was saying is that in Jewish liturgy, in the time of Pentecost, when it's spoke, when when they when the giving of the law on the mountain is read, the entirety of the Book of Ruth is read alongside that. Um, and so, what he's saying is that the giving of law 
that can seem like an abstract thing, laws coming down from heaven, like something, you know, um, like something objective. And to read the book of Ruth alongside that, which is the undoing of the objective, which is the absolutely incarnating of law into the story of through whose life must we interpret the law? And what are the challenges we must bring to the question of the legal interpretation of religious and societal and social welfare law um, entitlement? And if this law doesn't work for a person whose marriage is contested, well, then the law doesn't work and you have misinterpreted it from the first place. They aren't the exception. You know, you often hear on the radio if some head of a corporation is being challenged and, you know, they say, oh, we treat everybody equally. And then the interviewer might say, well, actually, I've got a person here sitting next to me who's got this other story. And they'll say, oh, we can't comment on individual cases. What the Hebrew Bible is saying, unless you can comment on individual cases, it's not the law. And so I love that. It is the absolute undoing of saying, look, it works for the majority, so therefore it's fine. This is saying, no, if it doesn't work for the minority, it has never been fine. It has been something else. And it has not been Torah as the secret unfolding name of God, spilling with love amongst the people like rivers of justice. And I think that is a, a moral imperative when it comes to people engaging with the question of law. Um, the, the other thing that I love about the story of the Book of Ruth is that it is quite secular. God is not an annoying <laughs> character. There's no intervention, you know, there's no miracle. Nobody jumps up out of the grave. No voice comes from the sky. In that, in many ways, it feels very recognizable, you know. And in its recognizability, what we see is the extraordinary self-empowerment of two women, Naomi yeah. and Ruth. And we see how seriously Naomi takes obligation and how unseriously a society can take the women and the obligations of women in its yes. understanding of law mm -hmm. and citizenship. And so therefore, I think it is a phenomenally secular text. And secular does not mean anti-religion. Secular means in and of its time, facing the circumstances of its time. I think Jesus mm. of Nazareth was an extraordinarily secular individual. And this, as a text that pays attention to the politic of its time, is a secular text. And I think that people who take theology mm. in its public face seriously need to be secular in the sense of mm. that we have to be in conversation with the dynamics and the powers of our time. And so therefore, this is what I love about the ordinariness of the Book of Ruth, is that what we are seeing is people who have to go, what can we do? What opportunity? How can I shore that up? This will involve risk. How can I make this work for me? It is messy and painful. Um, I have seen, and in some of our seminars, we had some people to say, the reason why Ruth is extolled is because in chapter one, Ruth converts to Judaism. You know, wow. where you go, I will go, your people will be my people, your God will be my God. I think that was just something to say as a mark of affection and commitment, um, rather than her saying, I am becoming a Jew now, because there's deep ambivalence about conversion into Judaism within Judaism anyway. So it's not like Christianity that is absolutely ravenous and monotonous 
maniacal about making converts. Judaism is not in that context. And I think to imply that she became a good Jew, so therefore she's a good person, that speaks about the myth of the good immigrant. And what this is, is recognizing, I think, the phenomenal challenge of the immigrant who has her own standard of integrity. And it is in light of her pre-existing standard of integrity that a community to whom she migrates needs to examine itself. Yeah, this is so good. This is so good. You know, I, I was thinking, I was like, I don't think I've ever encountered folks rereading Ruth and putting it in dialogue with the broader like ancient text. Like it was just as a enclosed story within itself still, right? Mm -hmm. And then people are saying, yeah. well, we need to reread Ruth. We're missing some stuff here that's going on, which was helpful and meaningful. Yeah. Um, but what, what you're doing, I really appreciate in terms of just um, helping us see the kind of broader uh, Hebrew wisdom and dialogue and conversation that's going on um, in the way in which, as you say, um, we must ask, you know, through whose life must we interpret the law, the Torah, right? I think that that's really powerful and meaningful and certainly something that um, needs to be a better, uh, more embedded into the, to the creative readings and wrestlings and journeys and discerning um, uh, reasoning, right? Biblical reasoning of, of so many people, yeah. Yeah. There's a second lens through which you can do this too, which is nobody knows who wrote the book of Ruth, okay? And there, there are really insightful and helpful arguments as to whether um, it's fiction or so somewhat historical. And you can easily imagine that conservative and liberal Christians would move in two different directions. So some people think it's kind of inspired fiction, other people think it's, you know, it's history. And I suppose what I'm uninterested in is that being easily predictable and split up. What I think is there's great virtue in imagining both and imagining what's going on. And there is a theology of art that comes from understanding that fiction can be inspired, like mm. Jesus's parables, for instance. Yep. So it's, it's estimated that based on the grammar in the book, that it might have been written around the same time that, that, that Nehemiah was operating. And I see Nehemiah mm. as the patron saint of sectarianism. Right. You know, yeah. Nehemiah was building up the walls and That's Nehemiah right. toward, toward the end of that chapter is saying, here, if you've come back from Babylon and you have a foreign spouse and half foreign children, get rid of them, have proper ones. Do you know, he is speaking about this contamination of blood that happens from the, inv the involvement of, of marriage to a so-called foreigner. Okay. Right. And um, what I think is interesting is the serious possibility that a woman decided what we need is a narrative about a displaced widowed foreigner who returns us to herself rather than threatens us. Yeah. Here she is. Let me introduce to you a woman named Ruth. So I, I have no idea. I've made that imagination up. But if, if that could be true, or at least considered to be true, what we see then is a really, really important theology of art and mm -hmm. the prophetic power of art. Yeah, that's so good. Padraig, if it's not too personal, can I ask you to, um, you shared that so eloquently, but you're a magnificent storyteller. Would you tell the story of your mum sharing her visitation as oh. a way of illustrating <laughs> that exact point? Yeah, <laughs> nice memory. Um, 
my mother once said to me in the middle of a whole load of things that I was only half listening to, my mother said to me, have I ever told you about the time Our Lady appeared to me? She means Mary, the mother of God. And I was suddenly listening and I said, no, you haven't. And she <laughs> said, yeah, yeah. Um, she said, I was lying in the bed in the afternoon and my mother lived with horrific depression for much of my childhood. Um, so lying in the bed in the afternoon kind of describes 15 years, almost 20 years, mm. two miscarriages, three more children, you know, during that time. And um, uh, so she said, I was lying in the bed in the afternoon and her own mother had only recently died. And she said she woke up because a strange woman had walked into the room. And she said she was dressed like she was out of pennies. Now, pennies is just a, sh a local <laughs> shop here. That's nothing fancy. OK, yeah. um, so what she was saying is she looked totally ordinary. She said she kind of curly, um, curly, short hair, uh, gray. And she said that my, my mom said, I knew immediately that it was Mary, the mother of God. And she said, I felt the depression on the mattress from when she sat down. Mm. And then Mary looked at my mother and said to her, you've never liked me very much, have you? And my mother said to Mary, um, no, with a simplicity that she wouldn't have an ordinary life and a lack of guilt, she just said, no. And then Mary smiled and looked at her and said, that's okay. Mm. And my little brother came into the room and my mother turned to look at my little brother and turned back and the star of the sea was gone. Mm. Mary, the mother of God. And there's a question for me, you know, you could say, oh, it was a dream. My mother was in grief herself. Her own mother had only recently died, etc." But the question for me, the theological question of this is the power of art. And that if we understand the faculty of imagination as one of the extraordinary features in the human condition, well, then isn't the imagination the seat for the um, for the springtime <laughs> where something that hasn't yet grown can be imagined to grow and therefore the imagination of it gives space to it. Um, yeah. I love that story so much. Yeah. So do I. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious if, if there are, you know, I mean, at least in my work, sometimes I feel like with the pan global pandemic and all that's been going on that's in our society. I'm curious, like, are there, have there been contemporary stories of belonging that have been inspiring to you? What, 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 what is there things that have caught you? Like, you know, I see things unfolding in ways that really give you kind of, I want to say hope sometimes could be used in such unhelpful ways, but I may I'll just say inspire you in terms of what's mm -hmm. happening in real life situations with real people. Oh, um, I'd need a bit of time to think. I'm sure the answer is yes, Drew, but I'm just um, looking, reaching out. The first thing that came to mind was um, not a real life situation. It was um, a film. I watched Coco mm. a few years ago, you mm. know, that beautiful animated film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was on a plane and I wept, <laughs> stopped crying as a result, um, because I thought it was a magnificent story about stories and also about an imagination about how the dead are not dead and how the dead are with us mm. and how the story of the dead is an accompaniment even if it's never widely known. I suppose that's very relevant to me because of Glenn 
Um, yeah. But it's relevant to all of us because we all, we all live with grief, you know, personal grief as well as societal grief and ways within which even in the midst of sorrow and in the midst of recognizing certain things and certain people will never come back. Nonetheless, there is a way within which our own bodies and imaginations are the repository and archive of the life that lived. And we can find a way to bear witness to, to that dignity. Um, I, oh, I mean, there are all kinds of artists who I admire because of the work that they do. I think of Ilya Kaminsky, who wrote a book called Deaf Republic which I admire enormously. Um, I think of Raymond Antrobus, a deaf British Jamaican poet, and his work is um, overwhelmingly brilliant. Um, as he looks at stories of hearing and not hearing, as he looks at stories of, um, looks at stories of Britishness and, and um, Jamaicanness. Um, Think of Lucille Clifton and the way within which throughout her long career and very short poems, most of which never had punctuation deliberately. And um, there's a, a profound simplicity to her poems that she found ways to tell all kinds of inconvenient stories. You know, she's got one story, one poem imagining when kids were talking to each other about when they found out about sex and she's imagining in her own persona in the poem about how to say, I learned about that by the actions of my father. And she just leaves you there in the midst of that. And you, we realize that it isn't only in the beginning of Genesis that people need words to be elevated in order for lives to be made real and lives mm. to be made dignified, that Lucille Clifton was doing that over and over again. So I find hope in artists who find ways through their words to tell truths that are really important. Um, I thought Amanda Gorman's inaugural poem recently was a magnificent piece of public art making and um, mm -hmm. the way within which she used narrative, she used we, she used all kinds of things, she used all kinds of references from Hamilton to Maya Angelou, um, ways mm -hmm. within which she was bringing into the public ear um, a way of looking to the past and saying something for today. I thought she was doing something like civic liturgy. Um, in a way that was meant to tell the truth and also say, here's the possibility of what language can look like in public. Um, who else? Do I, I mean, yeah, I could keep on going in terms of the artists mm -hmm. that I turn to. Primarily, I, I mean, I see poetry as contemporary scripture and I treat yeah. it as such. All my training mm -hmm. was in treating scripture with all of the dignity that you can treat it with, with close, close reading and with serious imagination. And I do the same to poetry because it's worthwhile doing it. Yeah, thank you. So good. Mm -hmm. Audric, I, I could listen to you all the time. And in some ways I do, thanks to um, what you're doing with uh, the podcast and um, <laughs> uh, uh, wonderfully uh, with Paul, with um, uh, uh, Nine by, I'm dyslexic. Ten by nine. Way, ten by nine. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, that's not the right way around, Jared. Ten by nine. Um, uh, and I... I want to dig in further around that conversation um, that I feel like I've been having with you for years in terms of how not to be Irish and um, uh, anti-racism work at the moment. Um, uh, and and that, that there's so many parts of the book of Ruth I'd like to explore. I am aware of the time um, and in aid of not being selfish, but knowing that so many people, uh, the podcast itself inverse is just kind of like um, 
the it's the entry door it's the welcome mat um there's over 300 of us in different meetings throughout the week that meet oh, lovely. Um, uh, uh together and discuss and uh, learn and there's some magnificent wonderful people who ideally love from around the world who are on now and I'll, i'd love to give them an opportunity if you still have time to hang around oh yeah i've lost time i'd questions. love to meet people yeah or tell a story too you don't just have to ask a question there might be something from your life you want to say that you want to tell i'd be thrilled oh that'd be wonderful well i would like to start with who who is nelly our other co-host um our dear sister carol um from misingi trust in in kenya um uh carol maybe we'll, we'll start off and uh, then as people um, feel comfortable but we encourage you unlike the rest of our meeting which is marked by a, a contemplative waiting upon one another. We're recording. Let's make the editing easy for Julie. If people could <laughs> fire their questions, that'd be great. But after you, dear Carol. Thank you. Um, do you say Padraig? How do you Padraig. say Padraig? Padraig, yes. Padraig, thanks, Carol. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. I'm Carol from Kenya. Um, I was very curious. Thank you for such depth. This is also one of those inverse podcasts that I have to go back and listen to again. So, so much depth. Uh, two things, um, two questions from me is about when the minority is the oppressor. Um, mm. What do we do? Because uh, there's, there's something you said that if it hasn't worked for the minority, then it's not good. Hmm. What, what does minority then mean if the minority is the oppressor? Um, and right now we see, especially in terms of wealth, in terms of capital, in terms of all of those things, the minority, the 1%, the 0.1% is is the oppressor um, and also the minority in terms of wealth are now hoarding wealth and then they don't once we have uh, conversations about reparations that becomes a different story then uh, my other question is about the the lady i really can't remember the third person in the book of ruth what was her name her mother-in-law naomi no, the other lady, the one who went back, who said... Oh, Orpa. Orpa. Yes, yeah. Orpa. <laughs> <laughs> What's her take on her? What was her oh, role yeah. in the story? Because I feel like uh, she... Oh, man, there's a book I read and they said... Uh, it's, it's a very nice book. I forget the title. But um, she... Naomi, Ruth was saying that Oprah was brave for choosing to go back. Mm. Choosing to go back to a place where she did not know. She had already shed off her identity and so she was going back to whom she was. Yeah. What do you... Well, what do thank you? you very much for these, well, for the corrective and for the question. You're completely correct. I was, I was clumsy when I spoke about minority because minority, as you hi rightly highlight, is often a privileged minority and it is the majority. I suppose I should have said that unless the law works through the lens of the oppressed um, population, and that might be 95% of the population, um, unless the law works through the lens of the oppressed 
and the excluded, well, then the law isn't the law. The law is just a, a cover for abuse rather than saying the minority. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. And I think that's a very wise um, corrective into this story. When it comes to ARPA, um, so in the, in the Midrash, um, which is kind of like the Jewish commentary on the text, there's a, there's a description of Naomi. So she's from Bethlehem. She's lived in Moab for a long time. She's, her husband's died. Her two sons have died. She's left with these two Moabite daughters-in-law. And she's going back to her home. And she is not expecting a good welcome because she and her husband and sons left because they had money to leave during a famine. So, and they didn't share that money. <laughs> so um, they were going back to a homestead and back to a population of people who probably wouldn't welcome them back. And Naomi describes herself as a husk of a husk. So she's like the dead skin on the dead skin of a piece of barley. You know, she feels utterly worthless and um, empty and alone and, and cast off. My feeling is that the story might be implying that she was expecting to die on her solitary journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. That while she was saying she was going back to Bethlehem, that she was planning on allowing herself to die. It was a time of famine. That might, it might not have been difficult to die in that way. And that Ruth and Orpah had a discussion, which one of us will accompany her to keep her alive? And that they decided Ruth would. And what Ruth says, where you go, I will go, your people will be my people. People use that in weddings a lot. But there's a little curse she draws down on herself. May God do to this, this to me and worse still if I abandon it. It's called an imprecatory oath. And you can imagine that actually Naomi was like, oh, my God, I don't want you to come. I want to be able to die, <laughs> yes. you know, and that actually this loving gesture was initially felt as a burden on a person who felt like they were at the end of themselves. And that Naomi might have thought, I don't want to have to look after you, because even at the beginning of chapter three, you see that still Naomi is saying, now I can do right for you according to my obligation, because marriage was a legal obligation. It wasn't a story of love. There might have been if, it's, if they're lucky, but it was primarily a story of legal obligation. I like to imagine that Orpah is the secret author of the story of the Book of Ruth. Mm. <laughs> That's wow. completely made up. I need to put that out there 100% <laughs> that it is completely and utterly made up. Um, I have no evidence and there's nothing in any Midrashic text to imply that. But I love the idea. Um, I love the idea that Orpah didn't know what happened and thought, given what I know of these two women who I love, um, what might have happened to them? So what is really interesting is that in no way is there a castigation of Orpah. Um, Ruth's husband, I forget his name. I always, get her, I always forget her husband's name. Technically, the children that Ruth would have should be called his children, according to the, the legalities, but they're not. They're called the children of Boaz. So her husband is judged, um, and so is Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Um, but, and, but, and they are replaced placed they are erased from the narrative in a certain sense especially Ruth's husband but um, Orpah in no way is erased we're just left with this open-ended mystery and I always wonder about her but what I love is that there is no condemnation of her and I think she too was doing something wise mm. what do you think Carol oh man I I've not read that story in a long while and so my memory is is messy 
But because um, when the story of Ruth is told, especially to us women who are not yet married, it's normally to tell us to lay at Boaz's feet, whatever that means. <laughs> wow. Well, wow. Well, good luck. Well, we, didn't... <laughs> we didn't even go there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but for me, it's about the decision to to identify whom to journey with and when to journey with who and what that means. I'm really loving um, uh, what you're saying about uh, tribes, about being when you have privilege, because those are really um, key conversations we should have in churches. Like I'm thinking of my context in the Kenyan church, um, those are very important conversations. And to see, to see it through the lens of, of a liturgy for the community, because I feel, mm. I feel we need to have these kinds of reading that give the community liturgy to express what's going on, especially around uh, politics. Yeah, so that's, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm going to reread that and uh, look at what that would mean for our civic liturgy, as you said. So I'm really grateful. Thanks, it's lovely to meet you, Carol. Nice to Thanks, meet you. Carol. Padraig, I'd like to introduce you to somebody whose poetry uh, you've actually read and praised previously. I'm not sure, Daniel, whether you've actually met Padraig other than kind comments, but Daniel has a question for you. Yeah. Hey, I don't know if you would actually remember that. It was a couple of years ago. I was. Uh, yeah, I do. Feeling grumpy. You do. Okay. I recognised um, your name when I when it came in. Yeah. Oh. Well, thank you for doing that. First of all, and thank you for your um, comments. Um, my question is actually, I guess, about poetry or about art and that kind of thing. Um, and thinking about how that, I guess, the role of that in in our societies and in our communities. Um, and I guess my thing is that like, when I'm writing, what I tend to go towards is, I guess, a very kind of personal, like po poetry that's about me, as it were, and not so much like my inclination is not to write, I guess, poetry that would be called political poetry. And there's, there's, I guess my question is like, like there's part of me that thinks that maybe I should do that, that like I have a responsibility as an artist to write more political poetry or is that just you know my own yeah i guess my question is around that like do you see do you see that as a responsibility for artists and for poets to actually be speaking explicitly to like politics and society or yeah what are your thoughts around that um i remember well reading your work daniel um and I, I, one of the things I love about being an artist is that um, art does not fit into strategic plans, um, whether <laughs> an, an organizational one or a personal one. I suppose what art is fundamentally asking for is the witness of integrity. Mm. And it is to go into the integrity of how art is, is drawing itself out through the story of you. That won't be universal. Don't ever try to make universal art, make the art you're making. Um, 
there is a Japanese facilitation technique, which I really like. Jared spoke about facilitation earlier on, and I do love facilitation, and I've worked in group facilitation for many years. There is a Japanese facilitation technique where you ask the question why five times, not aggressively or corneringly, but just out of curiosity. Somebody might say something about politics or about something else, and then you go, why? And then you hear another layer and you ask again five times. And I suppose I don't know that there can be anything that is personal that is not political, whether because mm. of its privilege, whether because of its luxury, whether because of its disembodiment, whether because of its suffering. I see that the individual is always in connection with the public and that the private and public have a profoundly intimate, sometimes diabolical connection. And so therefore, um, I, I think you, there is no should when it comes to the question of art. There is the question as to where is the deep drive of your art drawing you to and to follow that um, and let that be your guide. There are plenty of artists, um, so there is no should, there is no obligation. What there is, is a call to integrity. And I think that's a really worthwhile thing to do. And that is not a luxury. That is actually a vocation. So I, 25 years ago, I was put through three public exorcisms for being gay. And it took over 20 years for me to be able to pay attention to that through the lens of art. They're deeply personal poems for me. Um, and by being deeply personal, they have a certain audience, especially of other people who were put through the same kind of thing, reparative therapy as well, so-called reparative therapy. It was neither therapeutic nor reparative. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, there are, there are for all of us, there are ways within which art calls us to pay a particular kind of attention. And if you feel like this only will ever have an audience of one, me, that's enough. <laughs> um, if you need to write it, you need to write it or, or, or paint it or dance it or whatever form of art you're being drawn towards. Yeah. May I go next? Please, Tabitha. Hello, Padre. My name is Tabitha. Hi, Tabitha. Uh, I live on Ohlone land on the west coast of the United States. And I'm a, a little bit familiar with your work just recently, the last maybe two or three years. And so very grateful. And I, um, I think what stands out to me as you start to, you just started to talk a little bit about your history is that um, so much of my life, my experience with uh, religion and the church and um, just in general, I, um, I find that a lot of people use words for articulating what they want um, and a harsh demand or regulation. And you have a way of using language for tenderness and generosity and kindness and connection and knowing a little bit of your story, can you um, can you share how that came to be, or is that just who you like? Did you come out of the womb this way, <laughs> or um, are there <laughs> are there life experiences or mentors or like I mean, like I said, I know a little bit of your story, but what what would you attribute that to? Because I can tell you from my experience, first of all, I just want to say thank you for that. Um, that has been a true ministry to, to my soul, uh, the way that you have been able to articulate prayer and um, your 
connection and relationship to God and to other human beings. It has broken me open to be open to that myself after, after um, harsh things. But anyway, can you speak to that, please? Um, well, thanks, Tabitha, for the kindness of your words. Um, part of me would imagine that you are seeing the kindness that you attribute to me because of the kindness that you look with. So um, I would think that you bring as much to the question about what you're finding um, as anything that I'm offering. Um, uh, Rumi, uh, in one of his poems, says, and what you seek is seeking you. And that can be a comfort. It can also be a condemnation. But I think in this context, I think there's something about what you're seeking that you're, that you're finding. Um, I suppose I want to speak in praise of agnosticism as, as a result of this. Um, I know there's a lot of Christian devotion in this room, um, but I, I really praise doubt and not knowing. I grew up with around so many addictions to knowing. People know how you turn gay. People know how you can force somebody to turn straight. People know about how to get into heaven or people know who's in hell. And, all of these things and over and over and over again, it's the knowing that I think is the addiction. And mm. I have always been moved by people whose deep, deep scholarship is accompanied by humility. Um, this is terrible, but I forget his name. Uh, in my undergrad, it was a Vatican undergrad. So we spent inordinate amounts of time studying the early um, documents of the church, the councils of the first six or five centuries of the church. And the man, if anybody has studied these, there's a particular volume of those findings from those councils. And I forget the name. He was a priest. I forget his name, um, who had edited all those together. It was a huge, huge job of scholarship. And my undergrad was by distance, part-time by distance. And so we had these intensive weeks, sometimes over in Birmingham in England. And he lectured us for a week and we were all eating and um, studying together. And he was a very shy man and a walking library of information. And he treated every single question with great dexterity and great engagement. And he was capable of being very gently critical when people would say stuff that the text wasn't saying. Somebody would say, well, obviously the Council of Nicaea said the following, so what do you think of that? And he would say, well, the Council of Nicaea says this, and here's what it was in Greek, and here's the Latin translation, and here's the multiple ways that we can interpret it, and here's everything we don't know. And I found that so appealing. It wasn't just laziness. It was actually that a certain kind of agnosticism was the fruit of deep reading. And I have been around so many situations where the knowledge that's being put forward is really a demonstration both of anxiety and of addiction. And I am interested in neither. What I am really interested in is art. And not burdening people if they're already burdened. Sister Tamara. Hello, Podrig. Thank you so Hi. much Hi, for Tamara. today. Hi, and all that you do. Um, 
in a talk that you were doing yesterday, it really, really stuck with me. You quoted someone, I, I can't recall who it was, but it was, it was the idea of the fact that we have wordlessness in the face of mystery. Mm. I loved that. And you were also talking about language, like bringing us to the end, bringing us to the edge of the level and um, sort of to the end of the functionality of language. And that really, really struck me because obviously you work with words all the time. So I was just really interested how this idea um, where we talk about the limitations of language, how does that sit with you? How does that inform your work? How does that inspire you? That kind of thing. How does that sit with you when there's like an, an edge or a, a level to it? Yeah. I'll tell you a story and then I'll give you the quote as well. Um, is it Tamara or Tamara? I want to get that right. It's Tamara, yeah. Tamara. Um, uh, I was on the tube in London once and um, there was somebody crying on the tube. Um, the tube of the underground railroad system, the, the, the subway or whatever. People call it different things. And there's somebody crying and in the, in the trains in London, there's a lot of silence. You know, there's the noise but there's not a lot of people talking. And it was really clear somebody was crying. And I think there was a deep desire in the place to how to know, how do you offer comfort and recognizability to somebody and at the same time not invade their privacy in a public space? This isn't a space for doing therapy, of course it's not. And um, the woman who was crying and another woman um, put a, a a tissue, a handkerchief on her knee, uh, which was such a kind gesture. I don't even know, of course, it mightn't have been that the person who was crying didn't have a handkerchief, but it was a gesture to say, I'm doing the only thing I can. <laughs> and then the man next, so on one side, the woman gave a handkerchief and the man next to her gave her a polo mint. <laughs> polo mint is a, is, it's, it's a peppermint, you know. Um, uh, again, these were gestures in the body to try to say, I'm trying to do something that respects your privacy and at the same time in this place doesn't, doesn't drag you through. You, you, have, you have to answer to nobody. And this is also deeper than words, you know. And I, I suppose as a person who um, loves language, and we all do, <laughs> we all love language. I don't think I'm distinct in that. We use it all the time. Sign language, spoken language, multiple languages, language of the body, we're all using language all the time. Um, one of the things we know is that there is no language that can fully express anything. Um, ben Lerner has a book called The Hatred of Poetry, which is about how every poem is a failure. And I love it because he says that that thing you're imagining in your head at the beginning of a project of art, that will never get fully onto the page. There's always a tweak. Even if you failed very well, it's still a failure. And the person who I quoted yesterday, Tamara, is her name is Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. Um, and she is a Midrashic scholar. She grew up in Glasgow actually, and has since 1969 lived in Jerusalem. And she's a scholar of Midrash in Hebrew Bible. And the book from which that quote comes is um, called The Murmuring Deep. And it's psychoanalytic reflections on Hebrew um, narratives. And it is, she has written many books, but that's my favorite. Um, and in it, she talks about the word God. And she says, like, she takes text very, very seriously. Glenn and I actually both, I 
adore her writing and are in awe of her. And when we worked together, we one time I said, what would it be like to invite her to come to Ireland? We were like, why would she want to come to Ireland? You know, anyway, I wrote to her and she said, yeah, I'll pop over sometime when I'm giving lectures in London. And so we had the great thrill of hosting her for a, uh, hosting her for a, um, a lecture. And then we drove her around, her and her husband around. She was keen to see some parts of Ireland. And um, she she's a very orthodox Jewish um, practitioner, you know, so we didn't shake hands. You know, she, they brought their own cooking implements. And uh, the place where she stayed at Coromila, we were really keen to make sure that it was as hospitable as the hospitality that would work for her rather than what we would understand as hospitality. And um, Glenn once said to her, how would you describe your take on religion? And she said, orthodoxy with a little peppering of anarchy. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was magnificent. I just thought it was so rich and humorous but also so insightful. And she says in the book, when it comes to the question of God and the, the word God in whatever language, she says, we, we, we see God as character in a text, you know, God's wandering around the Garden of Eden, wondering where are they? Of course, that's not the entirety of God. That's God as character. And she said in Judaism, you understand too, that perhaps God is narrator of the text. And even deeper or further or higher than that, that God is author of the text in a strange kind of way also. But she said there's another level, that God is the one who's beyond language. And so the invitation with all of these things is that through faithfulness, through study, to come to the edge of these limitations of language, of course the writing of God in the Garden of Eden is limited. God isn't wandering around the place wondering what's going on. The invitation through faithfulness is to get to the edge and the limitation of that and then the edge and the limitation of that until we are faced as often as possible with a great wonderment in the face of all we can't know that i think is a magnificent thing and to say in light of all we don't know here's what we understand justice to be right now let's do that and let's continue to be open to the wonderment that's in front of us Aviva Zornberg, she's amazing. My colleague, Krista Tippett, with whom I work, has got two glorious interviews with um, Aviva Zornberg, which I can drop into the chat now. Um, on being.org and then Aviva Zornberg, you'll find it. But I can drop them into the chat in a little sec. Hi, Padraig. This is Kathy Harmon Christian, and I currently live Hi, on Kathy. the land of the, hello, on the Muskogee Creek here in Georgia, USA. And uh, first of all, thank you. I, um, when I want to come back to myself, I listen to Poetry Unbound. Uh, it ah. means a great deal to me. Thank you. So I wanted to share with you a story that's followed by a question, which is, um, as a person with Irish ancestry that co-opted with whiteness very early on, I lost Irishness. I lost the, the notion and the culture and the feeling and the vibrancy. And when I've been trying to re, kind of come back to that in a way, I went back to County Louth some years ago where my relatives were said to have lived. And I was walking along sort of not knowing what to do with that and just being there. And at one point I ended up in a store and someone asked me, you know, why are you here? And I said, well, I'm looking for my relatives. 
And the man said, well, who are you looking for? And I said, Harmon. And he said, well, Peter Harmon's standing right behind you. <laughs> and indeed, his name was, I turned around and he looked just like my father. And it was the most, and he invited me to his home. And I went in his home and I had my own child with me who ended up sitting on the floor with this ancestor that I didn't know playing with this Lovely. child. And the question then is, as I'm talking to him, he, he called his son, Stephen, and from across the village, and this is Akhnashin. And he came over with all of his genealogy and he sat down at the table and we talked and, and he said, well, you know, everyone that left for, for the potato famine was not poor. Some of them just left because they could afford to leave. And I, I've thought about that in light of what you've just been saying. And I wonder, did they abandon their own people then? Was that another version of whiteness that they left because they could and they, they left behind their own people? And I just wondered if you had anything about that. Um, I haven't thought about it like that um, before, Kathy. First of all, it's a lovely story and how nice that um, the person said, look, there's a Harmon standing right behind you. And then that the Harmon said, come to my home. What a lovely thing. Um, what I see in that is the deep hunger to belong. And what I see in that is how American whiteness needs to be um, dismantled in the way that people begin to understand some of the narratives from which they come. Tanahasi Coates is very insightful when he talks about the invention of whiteness. Um, before that, there was the Poles and the Irish and the Portuguese and the Italian and the Lithuanians, etc. And I think it is by looking to our particularity often that we find the fragments that can actually mean that the um, ganging together in a in a in a dangerous collective can be taken apart. Um, when it comes to that. So I, I don't know. I mean, the famine ships were terrible. They were, they were disgusting. Uh, lots of people died of scurvy on those ships. Those ships um, regularly arrived in the part in Boston and New York and Louisiana filled with disease. And there was, you can find all kinds of very interesting articles written by local Boston, New York, Louisiana newspapers about how they wished that the ships had burnt on the way because the people came, A, taking jobs for nothing, which undid local employment, and B, with, with terrible disease. Um, so there were some ships that were, you know, people who had bare subsistence were able to get on. I'm sure there were other ships, of course, there's any, you know, the, the, the entire population of Ireland wasn't poor, a lot of it was, but um, there were some people who would have chosen to have gone with, um, with a certain sense of um, money. They might have been criti critiquing the question as to whether the name Harmon came from, was an Irish language name or an English name, in which case it might have been that there were some there were some English people who came and lived in Ireland for a generation and I thought, screw this, we're off to America. And that coincided with the famine. And some Irish Americans, because their ancestors had lived in Ireland as land possessors <laughs> and as treating tenant farmers poorly, 
because their families lived in Ireland for a generation, they were ultimately British. They came to Ireland as part of a British colonial project and then moved to America. And some people say, oh, therefore they were Irish American. They weren't, they were colonizers in Ireland. So that might've been part of the critique that um, Mr. Harmon was offering in terms of the question of the story of the name. And so for me, part of the curiosity would be how long had the Harmons been in Louth before they went on? One of the diabolical things that you see in terms of British colonialism is that as you look at the successive waves of British colonialism, it started in Britain, you know, the Cornish, <laughs> Northumberland, Cumbria, went to Wales, Wales. Yeah. Um, Scotland, then it went to Ireland. And here's an atrocious thing. It is a, an abominable technology. The technology was, is that the more successful you wanted your colonial project to be the more local people you needed to kill quickly and they realized that that you can't just seize power you need to find a way that you have seized power in a particular way and not all british colonialism did that but some and certainly ireland was a learning point um, in a terrible diabolical way and then irish people became secondary participants in that through the irish diaspora mm -hmm. as well and so yeah, we're all tied up in the history, I th white people, but in the history of the last 400 years of Christianist war making. And I think that is a really important language to use. We, we speak these days about Islamic terrorism. It's got nothing on 400 years of Christianist terrorism. Mm -hmm. As you look at the land, the languages, the systems of governance, the artistic expressions, the ways of being community together, the ways of um, finding territorial navigations about border making, all of these things have been eradicated in the name of 400 years of European Christianist war making. And I think um, Irish people love to think, oh, we weren't part of that because we weren't an empire, but we bloody well were because we participated in it when we went overseas and thought, check it out, we're white. Mm, so good, so good. We could we could have this conversation all day uh, and we often do, but, um, but I just wanna say thank you for your life, for your words, for your honesty, your imagination. Um, thank you for the gift that you've given us um, here in the inverse community and that you often do to so many others. And so just mm. want to say thank you for that. Well, thanks very much, Drew. That's so kind. And Jared and everybody, thank you for your time and being in the room together. It's lovely to be with you. It's a lovely thing too, to honor Glenn. I know he would have loved being in this room. Mm. So yeah, his name is well, a blessing. You and you're welcome back anytime. Uh, I, in particular, <laughs> um, uh, if I was being selfish, I, I would really love to have that discussion about nationalism from below and um, uh, what um, uh, particularly uh, a, a Christian identity that's not weaponized um, might contribute um, to places where a lot of our listeners are in places like South Africa, Kenya, here, uh, lands now known as Australia, um, uh, in terms of... Uh, you have heard in the practice, um, the people who are part of our uh, groups that aren't recorded, that we introduce the traditional names of the lands uh, of, of which we're on. Um, so it, if you have time at any stage and that sounds like fun or anything else, Padre, you're welcome back anytime. Sure. No, the answer is always yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's nice well, to meet you friends and re-meet old ones. <laughs> send our love to Paul. Yeah, I will. Okay. Take care. Thanks very much. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. 
And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. 